Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture, hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, The Laws of Style. Great to be here. Downloading to you from the work from home offices, the law firm HBA, high above Central Park in New York, New York. I'm your host, Douglas Hand fashion lawyer and fashion law professor. And I'm joined today by GQ creative director, author, and overall menswear lord, Jim Moore. Jim, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. That was a way too kind introduction. I butter you up for the hard hitting questions that are going to follow. Um, <laughs> You're going to hit me right at the beginning. I can feel it. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. So let's do this. You are such a, a menswear industry veteran. I mean, 40 years at GQ. How did you get your start? Well, I always tell people I started when I was 10, so they can't, so they can, they can't do the actual math, but, um, you know, it, it was a long and a short road to get there. I was kind of a, you know, I was, I was a kid who grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I always felt like I was a little bit of a misfit. I always wanted to dress a little bit fancier than everyone else. I always wanted to, my mother recalls that I was adamant, and I remember this, that um, my bedroom looked like an apartment, not like a bedroom. So she got me a hideaway couch, that's what we called them in those days, and um, you know, a glass coffee table, and I wanted to have a swanky apartment, not a, <laughs> bedroom. So that tells you a little bit where it was kind of starting. And uh, very soon I realized that even Minneapolis was kind of a little bit small town for what I wanted to achieve. So as soon as I, you know, was probably on the cusp of turning 19, um, I headed to New York and I didn't know anything about being a fashion editor or what that job was. But I knew a lot about Condé Nast. I knew a lot about GQ and Vogue specifically. And um, you had a voracious appetite for magazines. I would spend all my, you know, money from shoveling snow or the three jobs that I had while I was uh, going to school to, um, you know, buy magazines. And I just loved, you know, the glamour of it all, you know, and and the excitement and who was the person who actually got to go on those shoots and pick the photographer and pick the clothes and direct the shoot. And I had no idea that term was fashion editor, but I knew I had to get to New York and get myself to um, a learning experience that would, would, would someday launch me um, into my magazine career. So that's kind of the short answer. It took, a, there was a few bumps in the road, but I got to New York and um, my mother was a really big advocate for like, you know, get out of this town, it's too small for your, for your dreams. And um, I was really happy to be from the Twin Cities, but I really had my eyes set on New York at a very young age. Excellent. GQ. I mean, culturally, it has been such a, a style beacon for menswear for so long. Uh, I mean, Christ, the, the, the acronym itself is used as an adjective all the time. And um, styles change they the styles have to change right not only to sell clothes but but to sell menswear <laughs> magazines styles have to change and evolve um what is the fine line 
for, for you and for the magazine to create such compelling content as you do uh, while either leading the zeitgeist or following the zeitgeist? You know, how do you thread that needle? Right. So I um, was at GQ for 40 years. I'm still there. I'm creative director at large. So they call on me when they need me or for consulting um, situations. But for the most part, I, you know, was full-time during, you know, a big part of the GQ heyday, which is still continuing under Will Welsh. But uh, I do remember in the 80s being in planning meetings and, you know, I don't know if it was me or one of my colleagues saying, well, that's very GQ and that's very GQ and that's very GQ. And that kind of just kind of, to your point, that kind of stuck. So, uh, you know, I, you know, the greatest thing about being in a magazine is that you get to study the ideals, the changing ideals of men, and you get to do it um, generationally, you know, someone who's like myself, fortunate enough to find my dream job and stick with it. I'm a Taurus, so I tend to stick with things, as you can tell, uh, for 40 years, uh, was really a fun, um, challenging, exciting ride, and it continues. And it is, uh, the most fun is to be able to develop a magazine that really speaks directly to your readers. And I think that's always been the mantra of GQ. It's not, you know, it's, yes, we take, beautiful pictures and we have incredible celebrities on the cover but at the end of the day we want to give you know a lot of nuggets a lot of style nuggets to our our readers and that has always been the mission statement of the magazine so you know whether it be in 1982 or you know 2021 it's that's always been the mission of the magazine i think it's why guys come to the magazine and I think uh, we can really be thankful for Cy Newhouse who bought us years ago from Esquire for a very little bit of money and knew that we were the engine that could and um, put some star power uh, into the editor-in-chief position with Art Cooper, you know, pretty much right off the bat. And then uh, Jim Nelson and now Will Welsh and three great visionaries with, you know, different but similar uh, similar missions. So I was lucky to be at the helm of the fashion uh, part of the magazine and supported and by my by my uh, by my kings, by my bosses, and allowed to really um, tap into you know the secrets of style and and create a style bible, so to speak. And um, yeah, feel very very fortunate and. Uh, you know, people are people always say like, oh, you're you're an animal. You never stop working. And I said, you know, from the age of 19, uh, I've been in a situation where we had to put out a magazine every three and a half weeks. So you're you know, you become a deadline junkie. You you this is just part of my life. It's not anything that um, I rest on. I don't plan vacations far in advance. I know that I'm going to have a cover shoot in three days or maybe in three weeks. And I just roll with it because it's. Uh, it's a passion. It's my, it's, it's my dream job. Well, that, that is the dream to, you know, build your career around a personal passion. You've done a, an amazing job of that. And you have been busy because uh, last year you published uh, Hunks and Heroes, right? Speaking of the four decades at GQ, uh, just for those listeners that may not have read it, tell us about the book. Well, you know, what I left out in my trajectory of getting to New York is the idea that 
you know, when I was a kid kind of trying to explore my possibilities of breaking into the magazine world, I didn't, you know, there was no internet. So I had to go into the back of the fashion magazines and look up, you know, various schools like FIT was for design and Pratt was for, um, you know, retail or whatever it was. And then I found this ad for Toby Coburn School for Fashion Careers. And it said, if you want to work in the magazine business, um, come to us. So that's the school I ended up with, which gave me my job at GQ and allowed me to, you know, start running from a very young age and never looking back. So when I was kind of pushed and prodded by Jim Nelson and a few other people, you've got to do this book, you've got to do this book. I got some really good advice from Mike Patternini, who's a celebrated award-winning writer saying, Jim, I know you're having a lot of anxiety about this. Just know that you don't have to do this book. You have, you, the choice is yours. And I rested on that for about two years. And then Ivan Shaw, who's a good friend of mine and the historian at Condé Nast said, you have to do this book. You have to put your work into a book and you have to do it for other people if you don't want to do it for yourself. And it had nothing to do with me not being proud of my work. It was just more of me wanting to look forward and not back. But he convinced me and we spent, you know, the summer of 2018 going through every GQ from March 1980 and realizing that I was responsible for 30,000 images. I thought we could do it in a weekend. It took us all summer. And then, uh, you know, Rizzoli wanted it. So we went with Rizzoli and then Dimitri Levis um, was the designer and we just kind of hit the ground running. It was, a, it was a really fun, pleasurable experience. And it was the most fun kind of, you know, the core group of people that were helping me put it together. They hadn't seen a lot of the things from the eighties and nineties. So, you know, it was really fun to be the storyteller. And it was actually, the look back wasn't, you know, as nostalgic as I thought it would be. And what I set out to do with the editing of the pictures is to pick pictures that hopefully um, had a little bit of a timeless feeling to them and could run today. So I wanted to tell my story. I didn't want it to be too wordy. I wanted it to be mostly pictures. And I just kind of chose my favorite pictures. And you know there were 1,700 of them out of the 30,000. And then I had to get that down to 300, which was a little bit of a um, a struggle, but once we did, uh, and we were on deadline again, it's just like putting out a magazine, um, we put it out and I was really happy with it. So the suit or, or tailored clothing, I mean, there have been the prognostications of the demise of the suit, probably the entire 40 year career that you've had, you know, uh, going on uh, until today. And um, COVID and its restrictions have further, perhaps, um, minimized the importance of, of dressing up for many, many people, uh, professionals and non-professionals alike. What do, you, what do you think about that prognostication of the demise of the suit? Uh, and um, you know, then we'll talk business casual after that. Sure. Well, I think I would rather look and at what you're wearing than what I'm wearing. I think you are the epitome of elegance today. And, you know, a suit always does that. You know, it's your coat of armor. When you put a suit on, you get compliments, you know, as much as I think you probably will get more compliments if you put on a suit. You'll probably be more comfortable in a hoodie, but you're going to get less compliments than you would if you were in a suit, right? Now, if you put the hoodie under the suit, then you have 
you know, a pretty great formula. Um, you know what? I, I'm not one of those people who really buys the idea of like the death of the tie, the death of the suit, the, you know, yes, things ebb and flow and things wane, but I think for the most part, we're seeing a lot of people, for example, Virgil Abloh at Louis Vuitton is committed to tailoring, you know, and we need the next generation of designers to be tailors because that is what the history of menswear is, you know, but is as far as like getting a new generation to feel like they need to buy a suit when they really don't need a suit, except for a wedding and a funeral and to get a bank loan or something. <laughs> I think uh, we got to make the suit cool. And I think there's enough examples of that out there. I'm working with a company around a client of mine who is really kind of concerned about, you know, the idea that sartorial is evaporating a little bit the idea of dressing up and so we're trying to work on pivoting to you know a world without with less neckties but it's not a world without neckties it's not a world without suiting so i find it incredibly exciting um, that the suit is being reimagined and the suit has to be reimagined you know there's certain there's certain things that you know thank goodness for you know Brooks Brothers and Ralph Lauren and, you know, the people who are, you know, put their stake in the ground early. And, you know, I always say, and I've said this to Ralph, what would we be wearing today if Ralph Lauren wasn't around? So I think he's someone who has definitely stood for, you know, strong startorial statements. So we are, um, I think, in a period where we're working from home, we only have to be seen from the chest up. And uh, that's the only thing that matters right now. But I think there's gonna be a moment where we're gonna go out in the world. We're probably not gonna buy, you know, six suits a year like we usually did, but we're gonna, we're gonna think of the suit as something very cool still and something that we're gonna put maybe a pair of sneakers with, or we're still gonna dress up like you do, or I'm still gonna put my suit over my turtleneck and we're still gonna look cool. Well, it's interesting you bring up, you know, some of the, the American icons that have um, epitomized tailored clothing. I, I wonder what your opinion is of the sale of Brooks Brothers um, and the recent announcement of Michael Bastion taking over there as creative director. It was music to my ears. It was exactly what I feel like they needed. Uh, I did a, I did, I styled a fashion show for them um, in Tokyo last year. It was their 40th anniversary of being in Japan. And, you know, it was a wonderful experience because they let me go back into the archives and we gave it a little bit of a 70s bent and wider ties and, you know, but, but you know, on very young people and did kind of a cool spin on it. And I found it to be, I had never been in the basement of Brooks Brothers. I had never seen where the stock is and right. that machine of those people who know every skew, every style number, like the back of their hand. Yeah, Michael has and, told me about that. It's crazy. Right? I mean, it's an incredible institution. And, you know, Michael Bastian is someone who deserves it. You know, he is a, he, you know, he's a modern prepster. He is the guy who is going to take, you know, the rugby shirt and do his spin on it. He is, as you've probably seen his Instagram posts, he's obsessed with the very long collar original yeah. Brooks Brothers shirt that has kind of, you know, always had a steady, you know, growth in sales where 
in Italy and, and Japan where the super fans are, but not so much in America. So he's going to try to bring some of that lore back, but he's going to get cheeky with it. He's going to have fun with it. And it's going to look chic and elegant. So I think they picked the right guy. I'm a big fan of Michael Bastian. I was very sad when, when he stopped doing his main line because I, I felt like we needed that contemporary yet traditional yet in, yet very modern thinking uh, designer. So now we have him back at, a, at one of the biggest and oldest menswear institutions. Yeah, it seems like an absolutely perfect fit to me. And, and full disclosure, he's a client. and We, we helped put that deal together, which um, you know, felt, felt good on many levels. Uh, yes. So- Congratulations, you picked the right guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, back to GQ. And, and, and one of the things I've always found GQ does very, very well is spoon feeding for men. Maybe that's the wrong analogy, but you know, for some men, spoon feeding that that business casual right zone to still exhibit some chicness, some style, some individuality, but not be in the suit. Um, why do you think so many men have trouble with business casual? Because they've been brought up on the idea that you wear a suit to work and a suit is a very easy thing to wear. It's almost, I always compare it to like, I'm sure if you're a woman and you put a dress on, that's probably the easiest thing you do, right? You look elegant, you look great. All you need is a handbag and a pair of shoes, right? right. So when you put a suit on, you're pretty much 80% there. You just need to pick out a shirt and tie or a turtleneck or whatever it is. Like and, we're animals for men. Like we're animals, right? So a suit is, is, is really like the thing you get excited about putting on when you get out of the shower and you head to your wardrobe. You know, it's like, I'm gonna put the suit on and I just need to pick the shirt and tie. Now I'm gonna wear the navy today, the gray tomorrow, the olive the next day. So business casual was really conundrum for guys. And I remember in, in 91, we, we devoted an entire issue to it because that was when it was just starting to come into the ether. And Art Cooper is like, we need to be demystify this idea and so we spent some time in law firms and you know bankers offices and and saw that they were taking business casual to the extreme and so i came up with this term called saying it was business it was casual fridays in those days right so i came up with this this saying which was friday is not saturday because there was a moment where you would go into these law offices and it was just caution to the wind, ripped jeans and sweatshirts and sneakers and no, 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 no. So we kind of did our first guide to how to pull it together. So the reason it's getting back to your question, the reason it's so difficult is because it's a third wardrobe. Suddenly the guy has to think a little bit harder about like maybe a sport jacket, a pair of pants, what goes under it. If I don't wear a sport jacket, can I wear a jean jacket? Can I wear a chore jacket? What's going to be appropriate for the office? All of a sudden it gets confusing. It gets overwhelming and it gets exciting too because you can express yourself a little bit more not that you can't with a suit but uh so i think i think there was a lot of anxiety around that we devoted a lot of pages to it when it first started coming out and we still talk about that a lot like you know what's appropriate in the workplace when there really are no rules you know when the hinges are off and you can wear anything well so in the laws of style um we certainly talk about business casual and don't take business casual casually uh, as one of the laws. I, I guess I'm curious, Jim, what from, from your perusal of the book, 
Um, what law did you think for white collar professionals was, was either the best crafted as a law or your favorite? Well, first of all, thank you for doing that book. Thank you to the American men for doing that book because, you know, I feel that you put, you know, you put your spin on, you know, kind of the thing that we do every month, but you put it in a, you put it in a book and you made it very concise and you made it very pointed and especially to the professional community that has to look good, that has to, um, you know, go to meetings with the boss that has to always, for me, it's always about having that jacket handy. You can take the jacket off when you get to the, you can hang it on the back of your door or the back of your chair, or who knows if we're ever gonna have offices again, but you can hang it somewhere, but at least it's there. So if a, if a meeting is called and we know it's a spontaneous world, the jacket is there. You, you are silently judged by people by the way you are dressed. And as Tom Ford once said, dressing up is a form of good manners. It shows that you respect yourself, you respect your clients, you respect the workplace. So what I said before, which is Fridays is not Saturday, is probably the biggest rule for me. And I know it's the biggest rule for you in your book, which is, you know, dress for work, don't dress for painting your house. You know, this is, this is, <laughs> this is a workplace. This has to, you know, things have to get done and uh, you gotta look good. So it's really the art of, fitting in but also standing out a little bit too because this is a this is a moment where you can express yourself a little bit more maybe than in your suit so uh find that find your style niche so to speak uh, i think for me one of the saddest things is when i see a group of guys meeting outside of a, of a building maybe they're smoking maybe they're just chatting and they're all wearing the same blue shirt and they're wearing all the same khakis and you know, that has become kind of the, the uniform of dread, I feel, you know, it's like if just one of those, those one of those five people in their blue shirts stood out and wore like a tipped polo shirt and a pair of, you know, gray tropical weight pants and a pair of loafers. I mean, that's, that's kind of the way to go to the office. It's, yeah. it's not, it's not wearing, you know, the, the pale blue pirate shirt and the baggy khakis. Uh, but, and that's still out there. You, I, Keep waiting for the trend to die but i think it's you want you want to have a bit of tailored on you at all times and you don't want to wear sweatpants you can wear a casual pant you can wear a pant with elastic around the waist but it should have a it should it should fit like a trouser um you know if you're wearing a polo shirt it should have an elegance to it if you're wearing a jacket it can be unconstructed you if you're wearing sneakers they should be simple and clean you know these are all things that um, are appropriate for the workplace, but don't look like the weekend. You have to create your own separate wardrobe. It's not, um, it's like I said, it's not, it's not the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think, and, and maybe you can confirm or deny that the importance of fit has finally trickled into most closets. I'm not gonna say all closets by any stretch of the imagination, but a recognition of fit, a recognition of drape, um, maybe not a recognition that tailored clothing is important and brings most, I'll say, men to, to that eudaimon mean of, you know, shoulders broader than waist, not wildly so, but, you know, some, some ideal of the David, right? And who doesn't want to yeah. look like Michelangelo's David? 
I think we're, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of fit. I think fit is king. You can find your own fit. I'm not saying everything has to be, you know, a skinny, a skinny suit, but I do, you know, just to bring it back to my book for a second, my favorite spread for all the celebrities that I've ever shot, my favorite spread in the book is still uh, the first day that we developed an initiative called Project Upgrade, which was a way to do makeovers. Jim Nelson was like, I don't like the word makeovers. So he came up with upgrade, which I thought was great. And then we literally went out on the street and found guys that we thought were kind of diamonds in the rough and they were wearing their clothes too big. Uh, of course, this was the era of the skinny suit in the mid 2000s. And, you know, there's a picture of a guy who was a limo driver and he was wearing a black suit and he was kind of getting it all wrong. He was not, he was a very young guy. He didn't look young because of the fit of his suit. He knew he had to wear a black suit. He probably hated putting that black suit on, um, but he had to do it for work. And then we transformed him by putting him in a suit he could afford, because that was part of it too. I'm not gonna just put this guy in Tom Ford. So he could afford about a J. Crew price point. So that's what we put him in. Yep. And just, you know, little things like buying the right size or making sure the pants are the right length or whatever. People look at that spread because it's a before and after reveal. And people are like, was that, how long did it take him to lose the weight? Was that six months? And I said, no, that first one's a Tuesday, the second one's a Wednesday. It's a, it's all has to do with the fit of the suit. So I will always like what a suit does to you. I think it's your coat of armor. It holds you in. And if you like a more unconstructed feel, that's great. If it works on your body, if you like a slouchy feel, like more of a runway suit with a pleated pant, that's cool too. But I do feel like, you know, the suit should, you should wear the suit and the suit shouldn't wear you and it should really enhance the, the way you look. And, you know, the key to, the key, key to great style is finding a good tailor, let's face it. Absolutely. And, and know their name and send them a card with a tip at Christmas or the holidays, New Year. I remember that. Um, let's pivot a little bit to legacy and entitlement that is kind of coded in certain manners of dress. Um, and again, I do touch on this in the laws of style because within a law firm setting or an investment bank setting, you are not the junior guy in the bow tie unless you, you want a short life at that particular firm or mm. the guy who walks in the door day one with suspenders and a contrast collar shirt. Um, do, do you agree that there are certain articles of clothing that, that are charged with that legacy and entitlement? And, um, you know, do, do you think that maybe some recent offerings, I'll maybe say rowing blazers, or, you know, just sort of ironic statements, perhaps, about some of those vestiges, those patriarchal vestiges of, of, of entitlement, um, are, are interesting culturally and socially? Uh, I do. I think, um, you know, I think, I think if you're going to go for it, then you really should go for it. And I think it really has to be an extension of your own personal style and how you see yourself in the world and what kind of a suit that you love. And I had this, I had this question recently. Um, I was teaching a class and someone stood up and said, you know, I don't feel like I have personal style. How do I find personal style? And I said, if you don't feel you have personal style, 
pick someone, a celebrity or someone you like, and um, copy them, you know, and then and then after time that will become your own style. But I think what's important with what you're talking about, the vestiges of style, the sartorial um, code, so to speak, I think it's, you know, for me, I'm not so caught up on rules, but if you're going to go for it, you better get it all right. You better, you better, if you're, if you're going to wear a three-piece suit, the dimple and the tie better be precise, you know, and, you know, I look the way you're dressed and everything is perfect, you know, right down to the glasses that fit your well, face, everything, everything works, right? And you've thought about it and it's thoughtful and it's not boastful, but it's respectful. And I think that is, um, good sartorial style. And that is going to work whether you're wearing, you know, a Xenia suit or an H&M suit, as long as you um, have the confidence to pull it off. And yeah, well, and confidence is key, right, Jim? I mean, what is more attractive and engaging than confidence? And if you can find garments that give you that, wow. I mean, that's, uh, that's like a supercharger. Um, I agree. I think I think men stylistically are born insecure and maybe they're a little bit insecure their whole adult life. And the confidence sometimes is based on compliments, you know, and I'm not talking about someone like yourself who knows how to put it all together, but they, but the average guy who might want to experiment with like, okay, I've done the navy blue suit and the blue shirt and the blue tie. I want to try something a little bit different as they start to grow and build on their own personal style and as they start to get compliments, the confidence just rises up. And I think, you know, that's a snowball effect. Once you, yeah. once you start getting, yep. Once you start getting the compliments, you know, you feel really good and you start to experiment a little bit more with like, you know what, I, you know, no one likes yellow, but I like yellow. I'm going to try a yellow shirt. And then that suddenly it's like, okay, I found my style. It's dark suits with bright shirts or whatever it is. And um, that becomes a thing that makes you stand up a little bit straighter and walk through the door with, with. And then you look better. And then and you, you get more positive feedback. And yeah, exactly. Well, you touched on something interesting for kind of the bread from trail uh, for the guy that, that is maybe looking for some style avatar. And GQ has always done such a great job with their covers and then really exploring the individual style of, of some of these notable men. Um, you, you, there's no way you can pick one. I won't even limit you to a number, but maybe you know three of your favorite, whether past or present, um, covers and, and, and men of stone. Um, you know, doing, doing covers is a very interesting thing because it is my, my job or my goal or, you know, GQ's goal was always to make, you know, Ryan Gosling or LeBron James or Drake or whoever it is that we're putting on the cover at that moment in time to make them look the best they've ever looked and maybe put them in a, in a, um, you know, in a situation where they look very GQ. And I think what's been really fun for me is to have the opportunity to work with, you know, an 18 year old 
Ben Affleck and then a 26 year old Ben Affleck and then a 40 year old Ben Affleck and see them watch the trajectory of their career. It's one of the fun things about being there for so long is that, you know, I see these people grow up or see Channing Tatum as a model and then as a superstar and putting them, you know, in the, a little picture in the front of the book and then that turns into, you know, four covers later. So that's a really fun part of my job. If I would have to kind of single out favorite covers Favorite, favorite person ever to photograph, hands down, Kobe Bryant. And Kobe Bryant, um, who unfortunately left us last year, is just the greatest guy. You know, he's, he's, he's a very classic guy in the way he dresses. And I'm sure he's still up there dressing, you know, beautifully. But, looks perfect. Something yeah. for that as well, you know, I mean, the time in Italy may have informed a little bit of that, not not to diminish anything of, of Kobe's choices. And I'm a huge Lakers fan and yeah, from California, so you couldn't yeah. uh, not be, but also great fit model. I mean, his body and his dimensions. Yes. And I think for me, beyond the clothes, it was just the friendship I had with him and also the way he would come on to set and have individual conversations with people, not just like a blanket greeting to everybody. Remember everybody's name. Someone wanted to talk to him. He was there for them one-on-one. -on -one. So, and this was a consistency, a real family man, someone who you just couldn't wait for him to come through the door so you could have a great conversation with him. And that's like, I'm getting, you know, goosebumps just thinking about him right now because he's an amazing guy. I'd have to say that my favorite cover of all time, because it put me in a situation that was pretty legendary was Obama because we shot him. I shot him twice. I shot him at when he was president elect coming into office and then the president of the United States leaving office. So I, the swagger kind of increased, you know, from, I go back to, I, I digress a little bit to this idea that I get to shoot people, you know, at different stages of their career. So the swagger that Obama had the last time we shot him in the White House, just the, just the fact that I've got 11 minutes with the president, I get to tell him to change his tie because, you know, he's amenable, he's excited to be on the cover of GQ. We have to, you know, deal with all of the pomp and circumstance of the White House. And when he walks in, he's just the most personable guy. So that's, that's a real career highlight for me. And then, um, Oh, there's so many covers. You know, one of my favorite covers is the Ryan Gosling cover where he's wearing Ralph Lauren and he's in a gray suit with a white shirt and a gray tie. It's right around the time when Mad Men started to percolate in the culture. And, you know, I was running around asking my fashion editors to like find more tie bars and, you know, let's do pocket squares more and let's like, let's bring kind of the, the gentleman back. And Ryan Gosling was kind of the poster boy for that. So, yeah. you know, but it is hard to pick, but those are some some favorite moments. Well, well I'll, I'll ask, a, I'll sort of uh, put an addendum on the question, which is, you know, you're taking a guy who may actually have no style and, and, and making him GQ. Who walked in with either the confidence or already the style quotient where you said, make your own choices, dude, you have this? You know, I photographed Sean Penn once and the... I've only done this for two people, Sean Penn and Harrison Ford. And basically we were told on both of those covers that they needed to wear their own clothes, which is something I don't want to hear. You know, I don't, I don't want, you know, it's like, I'm like there to 
dress them, you know, and I'm there to give the cover a look. And this was kind of a deal breaker. And in both cases, Art Cooper with Sean Penn, Jim Nelson, editor-in-chief with, um, was, was to, with, with Harrison Ford, was to actually, with Harrison Ford, I got to go to his house and kind of play with clothes with him. With Sean Penn, he was just gonna show up and we had to deal with it. And in both cases, the editor-in-chief said, are you okay with this, Jim? Because I could see me getting a little, rustled and nervous and Sean Penn showed up you know did his hair himself camera ready walked on set we didn't even know he was there we looked over and he was sitting at the, he was sitting on a stool ready to be photographed because he kind of snuck in the back the back door at a LA studio we shot him and he was he only gave us I think 30 minutes or 45 minutes at the minute that time was up he shook everyone's hand. He was very personal and he left. But, you know, the, the cover looked incredible. He's wearing a black suit and a black shirt. His hair slicked back and it was the 90s. So, you know, he looked cool. And then with Harrison Ford, uh, you know, I got to go through his closet with him. But those are probably the only two exceptions. That well, only... little laws of style anecdote about that Harrison Ford shoot, if it was the more recent one. Yes. Uh, kind of catapulted Jason Scott's business. We had him on the podcast uh, a couple of months ago. And obviously, you know, for Harrison Ford to choose to wear a Jason Scott, a relatively unknown designer at that point, uh, yes. and a t-shirt, no less, was yes. for him, massive for him. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, he's Harrison Ford. He's the man. He, yeah. Has, yeah. he has an incredible closet. And you might not think he is the guy who is meticulous about what he wears, but he certainly is. And, you know, and if I wanted him to try on 20 t-shirts, he would try them on. He was having, he was enjoying having me in his closet and showing me, you know, all his iterations of sartorial and, and casual and everything. So that was, that was a really special day. Well, maybe related, but much more general question. Uh, you're a world traveler. GQ has taken you everywhere. Your own travels have taken you everywhere. What cities, and again, I won't limit you by number, but what cities do you find men are the chicest? And whether that's, that's clothing or the way that they present and, and eat and live, but what three cities are menswear meccas? I mean, New York will always be my favorite because, you know, I've said this before, but I could be at the collections for three weeks, London, Milan, Paris, and get more inspired by sitting, you know, at an outdoor cafe and watching the way people walk by with their various costumes on in New York City. So that is a huge inspiration for me. I think what's fun about New York City is if you really wanna see guys dressed in sartorial splendor, you go to the Upper East Side. And if you wanna see people um, dressed, you know, cool and hip, you go to Soho or wherever. But I feel like it's, it's super inspirational to me. I feel like, you know, I've been out here because of the quarantine in California for a while, missing New York, missing, you know, those those long walks and seeing, you know, seeing the, all the street culture. After that, I would say Milan, you know, it, it's kind of, I wouldn't say it's an underrated city, but it's that city that people are like, well, that's the place that everyone works in Italy. And, you know, Milan and Rome, you know, kind of for me go hand in hand, but Milan, just the idea that people are getting up and going to work. And it's that Italian sensibility. 
you were to stop an Italian man and say, I love your suit, where did you get it? He wouldn't be insulted, but he, they, they pride themselves on not being fashionable. They pride themselves on having really great style and playing it down if you ever call them out for it. And you know that they spent an hour putting themselves together. You know they're meticulous about how their shoes are shined and what sock they picked and you know how the pocket square is in their pocket. But they, they throw it off in a very nonchalant way, but incredibly well-dressed Italians. And then probably, probably London. Mm -hmm. I always say um, London's a man and Paris is a woman. You know, so London is another place where it's great to see that the suit, I think still to this day, it has a lot of respect and uh, people get dressed up and obviously that's the birthplace of dandyism and it's still there. And it's especially inspiring for me to see um, young, a young generation, you know, still looking snappy and still wearing a suit and getting a good haircut. And those would be so, my three. Yeah, no, those are, those are all great choices, uh, undeniably so. Um, menswear tends to categorize itself um, really all fashion tends to categorize itself, but I find more than women's wear, men's wear tends to appropriate from say, well, this is surf wear, this is heritage work wear, uh, this is white collar, this is street, you know, whatever the hell that means. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do you think about that appropriation? Um, you know, is it, is it men being costumey um, or is it, men attempting to integrate an element of something that they, they are fond of or identify with. Um, and can you ever really gain inclusion by appropriating the style? I, I think, you know, men have style heroes and it's the reason, you know, the circulation of GQ took off like a rocket as soon as Art Cooper said, we're gonna put celebrities on the cover. And I remember questioning that and saying, how are celebrities going to sell more issues <laughs> than models? Of course, we're talking about 1984 you know, or something. And of course he was right. And of course, you know, Joe Theismann was the first celebrity cover of Art Cooper's era. And then from there was Michael Caine and then it was Mel Gibson and, you know, and the numbers just like went crazy. And I think it's because if there's any insecurity with men on how to dress, they're certainly going to look at their style heroes. They're going to look at, you know, they're going to look at um, Michael Jordan. They're going to look at LeBron James. They're going to look at their NBA, you know, um, squad, and they're going to try to emulate it. So if you know if Mike is wearing a suit, the rest of the NBA is going to start wearing a suit, and then that's going to trickle down to the public, right? Yeah. So if you know a young rogue basketball player is you know head to toe. Gucci or head to toe streetwear, that's going to have a big influence. So I feel like whether it be, you know, musician or whether it be, you know, um, an NBA player, those are two super big experiences because it's like sports culture is already built into, you know, uh, menswear for the most part. And I think the more kind of um, peacocky, the, the guys, the, the sport, the athletes get, the more that it gives license for guys to experiment a little bit more. So I have to say we're sitting in a very unique moment right now where kind of anything is possible and, you know, any, anything is appropriate to wear and anything is, 
um, acceptable. And, you know, there's some people can get a little bit nervous by that, but you can find your lane, you can find your, your squad and go with it. But I think uh, it makes for really good, um, it makes for really good personal style. It makes for really good eye candy. It makes for a really good um, culture overall. Well, what, what are some contemporary menswear brands that you lean towards or think are doing interesting things and in pushing those boundaries forward? Um, I think, I mean, I'm a big fan of Jerry Lorenzo at Fear of God, and I like what he's doing with his main collection. And I like that he has this essentials line that he was originally started with Sun. So he's thinking about a democratic price point because his clothes are very expensive. Right. And I've known him, Kanye is a very dear friend of mine and I've known Jerry forever when he was Kanye's assistant. And seeing how he's evolved, he used to love rock and roll t-shirts and that was his whole thing. And now he's evolved into his own collection and how he's created kind of luxury wear, he calls it luxury streetwear. And then he, you know, he hooked into the Xenia collaboration, right. which kind of showed that Jerry has this real refined elegance. And he's always saying to me, he's saying this to the public that he's still learning, you know, he's still learning how to, how to build a suit or how to build something that's sartorial, but is still speaks to the kids, you know, or, or has a street streetwear edge. So he's someone that I always, I always watch and, and want to give credit to. I love, um, the latest collection of Virgil's for Louis Vuitton, I think is spectacular because within that collection, there's so many ideas. Some people might say too many ideas, but you're talking about the mind of, you know, of a, of a creative, you know, whirlwind and um, just give us all your ideas, you know? And it felt like he was just so pent up from the quarantine and he just gave us you know, 50, 50 incredible ideas. Um, you know, I still, you know, I love what Tom Ford does. I think it's really exciting what's happening over at Prada with Raph joining um, Mrs. Prada. And um, I'm a huge Ralph Lauren fan, you know. But um, new designers, I love what uh, Kirby's doing at Pyre Moss. I love Emily Bode. I think she's got a really sophisticated bohemian spirit about her that we haven't seen before. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm working on a mentorship. I've been doing it for about six months where I'm mentoring um, the black community and especially menswear professionals, designers, creative directors, stylists, photographers. And is that through an organization that you can mention? It's my own, it's called The Mentors. Okay. And I, I just launched it on IG uh, back in August and I invited my friend, Rachel Johnson, who's a stylist for a lot of athletes to to do it with me. So we're doing it together. And it really, the idea came three years ago, we were shooting Colin Kaepernick for the cover of GQ. And it was a very polarizing, controversial thing to do, but the right thing to do. And we were all excited to put him on the cover. Rachel was his personal stylist. Uh, she's a good friend of mine. Normally I don't always invite the stylist on set, but her and I have a great collaboration. And it was really Colin that said, Jim, Rachel, would it be possible for me to wear all POC designers? And I thought that was a great idea. We had to kind of scramble and get 
get it all made. But at the end of the day, it was that moment shooting Colin in an undisclosed location so we could have a big reveal of the cover, putting him in all POC designers and um, getting a little bit of a 70s edge, writing a beautiful article about, you know, why we stand behind this man who has so incredibly, so many causes that really formed a deep bond between Rachel and I. So when I had this idea, I called her and we're mentoring about, we're probably up to about 20 people right now and we're connecting them with other people in the business. And we invite uh, through Instagram for people to apply. And, uh, you know, there's a certain criteria. You have, to, you have to be in it to win it. You have to have a, a plan and a mission and ask good questions. But, but uh, we welcome, um, it's called The Mentors. And, you know, we welcome um, anyone who wants to, um, who needs help. Because there's nothing lonelier than being a new designer or a new creative and being on your own and not having any help around you. And, you know, I had a lot of people not answer questions when I was first moved to New York. So I was this kid from the Midwest, but then a couple people did. And those people got me where I am today. Yeah, well, and it, it touches on, you know, diversity, inclusion, equity issues. Um, fashion doesn't have a great track record. It's, it's got a better track record today uh, yes. in addressing those issues. Publishing as well. Yeah. Um, you know, we, need to, we, just need to be, we need to be authentic about it. Yeah. Absolutely. We have to, we have to um, move forward to being consistent. And uh, I've met some incredibly talented people and we've been able to um, help them and just looking forward to what, what the future brings with all of it. Well, if it's not a 501c3 yet, we should talk offline and we can get that in place for you. Okay, awesome. Cool, cool. All right, thanks so much, Jim. It was Thank a lot you. of fun. It's really a pleasure, appreciate yeah. it. Okay, care. bye now. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.